So we're working through uh, a story. It's a historical story in the sense that it is the story of a life. The story of the life of Joseph. I was watching an interesting program on, uh, on Discovery Channel or one of those pro- programs. And uh, it was looking at the, um, the engineering, the civil engineering construction of the pyramids. And there's a whole load of people falling asleep at this point. Uh, I find it interesting uh, the way the pyramids developed over time. And the person who was uh, telling the story just mentioned in passing that uh, he located the building of some of the pyramids in the historical story of Joseph. I thought that was quite interesting, really, wasn't it? Here we've got somebody who is not at all talking about the message of the Bible, and yet he locates the building of these great structures in some sense to this historical location. Uh, And the story of Joseph is powerful in our culture, isn't it? We know lots about the story of Joseph. Uh, And yet, I think that many of us probably wouldn't know about this part of the story of Joseph. This is the bit that's missed out from musicals. This is the bit that's missed out from films. It's the bit that whenever we tell the story of Joseph, when we're in Sunday school as little ones, this is the bit that we miss out. And I understand why, don't you? Uh, However, because we're working through systematically the story of Joseph and because we are where we are and the age that we are, uh, we ain't going to dodge it. We're going to look at it because it's an integral part of this story. It is unspoken in lots of ways and yet at the same time it's shocking, isn't it? It's a shocking story. It's the kind of story which you think... Actually, I think I would prefer to be in the room over there, some people might think. I'd prefer to be listening to stuff that's comfortable rather than looking at stuff which is profoundly uncomfortable. And yet, at the same time, there are many of us who would say, I'm going through a particular issue in life or I'm uh, sharing my life with somebody else who is going through a particular issue. Is is God relevant in the mess, in the crisis, in the muck and bullets of this world? At least one of the things that this story tells us is that the God who we worship, the God who we proclaim, is not distant from the mess of this world. Uh, And he is engaged in it. He is working through it. That's at least one of the things that we see. And yet at the same time, I think we can see even more in the way that this particular account of Judah and Tamar is located in the greater narrative of the story of Joseph. First thing I want to say, just to start us off, is the things, keep this in mind as we're working through this, the things that shock us today are not necessarily the things that would have shocked ancient hearers. That's the first thing. And the things that ancient hearers are shocked by are not necessarily the things that we would be shocked by. That's interesting, isn't it? I think that at least says, before we jump on to our 21st century interpretation of this particular passage, let's just pause for a minute and say, hang on, this is the Bible. It's spoken to God's people for thousands and thousands of years. 
And therefore, because of that, it is definitely going to be uncomfortable for us in places. But it's going to be uncomfortable for us in different places than for other people in different locations in different times. And yet, it will be uncomfortable for them as well. And the reason for that, one of the messages that comes across in the Bible, right the way through uh, the whole of the storyline of the Bible, is quite simply this. God is different to all of us in some way. There are aspects of God's law, there are aspects of God's character, there are aspects of who God is, which we are going to engage with. And then there's going to be aspects which trouble us, and they change over time. But all of us are going to be confronted by the God of the Bible, wherever we are. All of us are going to be knocked out of shape a little bit. All of us are going to have the corners knocked off. All of us are going to be confronted by something which troubles us. And so let's start the journey. It was a long reading, so I'm going to kind of just grab it as a a few bullet points and take you through the story. What happens? Well, the first interesting thing that we, we, ha- we see is in the, uh, the opening verse of chapter 38. If we were looking at chapter 37, the last verse, the last verse is great. We looked at it last week and it said, Meanwhile, Joseph was sold to Potiphar. Uh, and it's almost as though, although the story is going on uh, over with Jacob, who's received this, blood-stained coat and the story that his son has been killed by a, a wild beast. Meanwhile, while that is going on, Joseph is being sold to as a slave in Egypt. And almost to bounce us straight back, the narrator says, at that time, Judah left his brothers. So here we've got this fantastic bouncing around different scenes whether it's a movie that inspires your way of understanding different scenes, or whether it's a Shakespeare performance which introduces different scenes at different times, that's what this story is doing. It's taking us to look at that, and then it's saying, oh, and by the way, over here, look at this, and then it's saying, now let's look at that. This is going on while this is going on, and this is going on while that's going on. In other words... From a story of the narrator's point of view, all of this is intertwined. This has something to do with Joseph. First thing we see is Judah uh, leaves his brothers and he marries a Canaanite woman called Shua. They have three sons, uh, Onan and Shelah. That's three sons, great news. Uh, Great news in that culture, in that day, because what it means is there is security for the future. Uh, our security for the future today is what? Our security for the future, I guess, is probably something like a pension, uh, although that might not be quite so secure as it once was. Uh, we might have a pension, we might have invested in property, we might have done all sorts of different things. We have the greater security of a state pension. We have the. Somebody laughed at the back about the idea of a state pension. Uh, We have the idea of a state pension, we have the idea of national national, uh, savings, as it was years back, security systems around us, the welfare state. In that ancient world, what kept you secure was the idea that you had the next generation. Because when you couldn't do to survive, the next generation could do for you. 
And so we have Shelah here, and Onan, and Ur, and Shua the mother, who dies early. She doesn't rely on them, but, but Judah looks on and says, when I can't bend down to plow the ground, when I can't go out and hunt, I am still going to be provided for because of my sons. So here we see, just in that little statement, we have a little window into the kind of greater culture that's going on. The protection that exists because three sons uh, have been born. What we then say, probably relatively young, probably in his teens, we see Ur is married to Tamar. Tamar takes uh, possession, in a sense, on an agreement with Tamar's father. That's the way it was. And Tamar is given as a possession to Ur and uh, Ur and Tamar live together. Probably they would have been in their teens at this uh, stage. Ur is described as a, a man who is wicked in the eyes of God, and we have this incredible statement, uh, and therefore God uh, put him to death, uh, which is an amazing thing, isn't it? We're going to look at that in a few minutes. Ur is killed. Uh, and so, according to the, uh, the kind of uh, the cultural uh, law of the day, it's a fairly straightforward process. If you've died uh, and your uh, wife, as was your widow, survives you and you have no children, you would be passed on to the next brother. And the responsibility of the brother is to provide uh, security for Tamar. Do you get the idea? Do you get the, let's just kind of move from 21st century to way back then. It's about security. How is Tamar going to be secured into the future? The responsibility is for Onan to make sure she gets pregnant and has sons so that, or a family so that there is a future for Tamar. We can't get our head around that, can we? That is so uh, different to our kind of world. And yet what we see is in that culture, Onan decides, hang on a sec, there's a problem here. If I make Tamar pregnant, then the inheritance that would just be mine and Shala's becomes an inheritance which becomes also providing for the child of Tamar. Hang on a sec. I'm going to lose out. I'm going to lose out. There is going to be something which I've decided is not fair. In other words, when I look at it, I would prefer for, for Tamar to be a destitute, helpless, begging widow and for my inheritance in my family line to have everything. That's the mindset that he has. And so he makes sure uh, in physical activity during the act of sex that he makes sure that Tamar is never going to get pregnant. That's all we're going to say. He makes sure that she just isn't. And so God puts him to death. That's shocking. That's shocking, isn't it? We're going to come back to that. That's too dead up to now. Judah says, well, Shelah is still very young. So I'll tell you what, Tamar, you go back to your father's house and you live as a widow. And when Shelah grows up, then I'll give you Shelah. He can be your husband. None of this uh, responsibility for the next in, uh, in line uh, to provide a family. I'll make sure that he actually marries you. And therefore, you're going to be okay. And so she goes back to her father's uh, home. It's an interesting uh, world that we're living in here, isn't it? It's a world which doesn't relate to our culture, but in the sense of 
placing ourselves thousands of years ago and hearing this story being repeated over the campfires of a night time as we recount the story of how God blessed his people through the time and we sit there and great granddad tells us this story of, of uh, Judah and Tamar, this kind of pattern of life would not have been unusual. That's one of the things that we have to get our heads around when we understand the Bible. Now we see that Judah doesn't actually, Judah's wife, uh, Shua dies, uh, and he doesn't, he's not faithful to that promise. So what he does is he um, goes to live a normal life, it seems. Goes off to meet with his uh, shepherds who are uh, shearing the sheep, and as he goes up there, the message gets through to Tamar. He's gone to shear the sheep with his workmen, his shepherds. Fascinating little incident now. She takes the responsibility of the future into her own hands. She dresses as a prostitute. The significance is that she removes the clothing that she was wearing as a widow and she dresses as something else. If we've been observing the story of Joseph as we've gone along... One of the really interesting things in the previous section is what? A coat. A way of dressing which has been interesting and significant in the past. And now we have a way of dressing which once again becomes significant. And Tamar dresses like a prostitute. Judah says, let's, uh, let's have sex together. Let me sleep with you uh, and I'll pay you a kid. How do I know you're going to pay, pay, pay me? And so Judah makes what many commentators have observed is a ridiculous bond. That's what he makes. He makes a ridiculous bond. He gives her his seal on a cord and his staff. The, the closest, I guess, one of the, one of the commentators that I read, the closest that we can get in terms of significance is something like our mobile phone and credit card. Or something like our credit card and our driving license. Something which is absolutely essential to us, which identifies us, which really we would never, never really give away, would we? As a simple bond in a situation like this. And yet that's what he does. Uh, she gets pregnant. He disappears uh, and then he sends his servant to take this kit. There's been no temple prostitute here. What? There's a temple prostitute. Judah slept with her. We're coming to pay the debt. There's been no temple prostitute here. Okay. Trundles back home. Kid in hand. Arrives back with Judah. I, I, I'm guessing that Judah had probably one of those stomach-turning moments where he suddenly realizes that what he gave away was incredibly significant. His identity has been given away. And so he turns around and he says, well, so that we don't look totally stupid, we'll just, you know, we tried to pay it, let's just get on with life. Three months later, the news comes through to Judah 
that Tamar is pregnant. Where's Tamar? She's with her father living as a widow. Judah, it seems, according to the culture of that day, remains authoritative over her because the news comes back to Judah that she's pregnant, which she should never be because, after all, she's a grieving widow and that's a terrible thing. The word that's used in the NIV is it says that she's acted as a prostitute. Probably what the better word that could be used, it's blunt, the word that probably indicates there is she's acted like a whore uh, and therefore Judah is outraged. Again, shock number two for us. Well, shock number 27, I guess, for some of us. Judah says, right, bring her out and kill her. Burn her. Uh, And we think, that's just terrible. And the ancient world would have heard the story being told probably for the first time and said, well, she's got a comeuppance because that's what happens when that kind of life is is lived in the ancient world. And then she pulls the trump card, I guess. Here's the seal. Here's the staff. Because after all, it's not just me that should be burned, is it? It's whoever I've slept with as well. They need to be killed. And therefore, Judah, if you can help me identify who these belong to, then maybe they will be put to death as well, so that justice will truly be done. And Judah looks. He's just amazed. And he gives the instruction for her not to be killed. But rather, he repents, I guess, is the word that we would use today. He looks at his own life and he's, well. The outcome of which is that, I guess six months later, five months later, she has children. And uh, it's an amazing birth. It's an incredible birth. Uh, She has twins. I have to confess, um, I'm, I'm reading this story and I'm thinking, really? D- did that actually happen? That as she's giving birth to one of the, chin, the twins, one arm comes out and the midwives tie a red thread around the wrist uh, and then the hand disappears and another child is born. I'm thinking, Really? And some of you, I'm sure, who are in the kind of medical world and midwifery and all of that, you'll be saying, yeah, of course that's, of course that's possible. And others, others of us are thinking, really? Is the Bible gone wacky here? Actually, it's called a compound presentation, is what it's called. And uh, in multiple gestation, a compound presentation can often be seen with uh, a hand or a foot of one of, of the secondary child appearing briefly, according to... Uh, a particular website that talks about these things that I read to try to put my mind at rest, that this really happened. That's it. A compound presentation. It must have been amazing. 
I mean, it's amazing that Tamar actually survived in that day, but she did. And Perez is born second, and Zara is considered the firstborn. We're going to think about that again in a few minutes. I guess we now, that's the story. What do we even begin to do with a story like that? I guess the first thing that we need to see is it shocks us, doesn't it? It shocks us, it shocked them, it shocked every generation for different reasons, but it is shocking. The first thing that it does is it sets the context. What we saw earlier in the beginning part of the story of Joseph, what we saw was we immediately jumped to the petulant youth idea of Joseph. He comes and tells tales on his big older brothers. That's the way it's normally described. And yet what we actually see is that Joseph brought a report because his older brothers who are responsible, who are the responsible older brothers are not living appropriately outside of the eyesight of Jacob. And then the narrator takes us and says, well, let me explain what that looks like. What does it look like? It looks like this kind of life. Because what we see here is we see a heart revealed, don't we? That's what we actually see. That's what this narrative is all about. It's about exposing of the heart Of Judah. What kind of guy is Judah? Step back from the the kind of different behaviors and all of that kind of thing. What kind of guy is Judah? Judah is the kind of guy who will make promises he will not keep. Judah is the kind of guy who will live hypocritically. Judah is the kind of guy who will demand Justice and blood when he sees somebody who's done something wrong and will hide his own sinfulness. That's the kind of heart that the narrator wants to describe Judah as being. That's what he's like. I'll promise you, Shella. That's what we'll do and then it doesn't happen. I'll tell you what I'll do. Don't worry, you can have Onan. I'll make sure you're okay, Tamar. But the reality is that from Judah's point of view, he didn't care tuppence about Tamar. She was an insignificant irrelevance to him. He had no care for her as far as he was concerned. She was out of sight, out of mind, back with her father. She could spend the rest of her life grieving as a widow. I've forgotten my responsibilities towards Tamar. That's the heart of Judah exposed. That's what the narrator wants us to see. What kind of guy is he? What kind of family is this? What kind of sons has Jacob got? What kind of behavior was going on outside of the sight of Jacob by the older brothers, which gave cause for Joseph to give a report about the sons. What kind of behavior gave rise for Joseph, for Jacob to send Joseph a second time and say, tell us how it's going on with your brothers and bring back a report. The reality is we've got a messed up family. 
We've got inconsistency. We've got deceit. We've got hypocrisy. And that is where God is working. That is great news, isn't it? Because sometimes we think, don't we, that God only works in the nice situations, in the cosy contexts, where everything's right. In fact, we assume that God will only work when we've got all of our steps in the right place. And then somehow, it's a bit like a combination lock. When we click all of our aspects of life into the right place, and when it finally clicks all in order and everything looking sweet and rosy, then we can turn the final knob and the safe opens and all of the kindness and goodness and mercy of God comes pouring out at that point. Do you know one of the great things that the Bible is insistent that we understand is this. God is the kind of God who is gracious. He doesn't pay back because we've been good. He gives because we don't deserve it. That's great news, isn't it? That's the kind of God that we see at work here. We see a God who is working behind the scenes. How do we see a God working behind the scenes? Well, firstly, we see a rebellious life, yes, But what kind of rebellion? Well, we see some shocks. We see two deaths. Er and Onan both die. They die young. The Bible describes it in this way. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord also put him to death. Or put him to death also. That's said about Onan. It's already said, because of Ur's wickedness, that the Lord put him to death. One of the things that the ancient world understood, and one of the things that we tend not to understand, is we create a distinction between the natural and the work of God, the miraculous. So God only works, the only way God works is in the miraculous that's, that's where God works. That's when, when, when somebody dies in that way, that's God working. Uh, and yet, what we see here is two men who die young, and the, and, and the narrator says their wickedness caused God to judge them and bring justice against them. That is, that is an incredible statement, isn't it? A God of justice and punishment... I don't think God zapped them out of the sky. I don't think it's some sort of, you know, thunderbolt. (laughs) Got you. They died because of their wickedness. And the ancients understood that there was a connection. The ordinary things that are going on are not outside of the work of God. It's a shocking thing, which we're going to come back to. The other interesting thing is that God... God deals with Onan. This point, this this idea of the responsibility of the oldest son or the next son to, to give life to the widow, it's a cultural thing. It's cultural. And yet it becomes something which God judges. It's 
an interesting thing, isn't it? I think one of the things that we need to come to terms with is, and, and God says this in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16. He effectively says this, you need to understand that the kind of God that I am is the kind of God who looks at the heart. He knows where your heart is. So do, do we in 21st century culture feel comfortable with the idea of a widow being passed from brother, brother to brother to brother? Of course not. Of course we don't. It's not what we would say is the appropriate way to live today, but it was the appropriate way to live then, but the heart of Onan was deceitful against a world view, against the way things were. And God was looking at his heart and he was saying, your heart is not where it should be. There's the problem. Your behavior is lived out by the shape of your heart. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? It's something that Jesus repeats. It's what's going on inside that causes us to live in this particular way. I'll give you another example. Um, I'll not give you that, that example. I can't remember his name. <laughs> give you another picture. There is a disturbing picture with regards to Tamar's expectation, isn't it? Tamar lives in this world and not, she, she doesn't shout and yet we would and rightly would shout that she is being abused, rightly, and yet in that world she lives within that world. Tamar makes us feel uncomfortable, doesn't she? She makes decisions. She make, creates expectations. She creates an expectation that Onan should have provided me with a child. And he didn't. And that was wrong. She creates an expectation that she should have been given Shella. She creates an expectation that she forces the hand of Judah uh, and tricks him into providing her. She does everything to secure her future. And that makes us feel uncomfortable. And yet what we see just exhibited by that kind of behavior is Tamar's desperate understanding that she had a new identity. You see, what she understood in that culture at that time is that she had a new identity in the house of Judah. And that was special and that was privileged and she was going to hold on to it and it had been given to her and she was going to live out in every way to make sure that that was delivered. We might feel uncomfortable by it and yet what we see is, Jude, is, is Tamar holding on to that desperate identity. We see a, an incredible discomfort with Judah's response. Under his jurisdiction, kill her because she's pregnant. Why do we have this story in this location? Yeah, we know that it's creating a context of the kind of person that Judah is. But there's something way bigger going on, you know. 
Judah, yes. He has an identity. We know now because of where we are when we look back through the story of the Bible, we know that Judah is significant and all of that kind of thing. Judah is the great forefather of King David who's the great forefather of Jesus. So he's a significant person in the story of the Bible. And yet what we see here is that this strange situation gives us an indication of God's dealing in it. I was watching a film last night. It's called The Adjustment Bureau. Some of you will have seen it, I'm sure. Really amazing film. Very clever. Plays with your mind. Gets you wondering, how do we work out this issue of the, the free choices that we make and yet a greater plan and all of those kind of complex questions. Uh, and it's all done with moving through doors from one scene to the other. And great film. Really great film. And yet at the same time, it creates a troubling question for us. How do we see God working out through time, over centuries, over millennia, and yet within the decisions that we are making day by day? The first thing I think we see is this. We see God's faithfulness to Tamar. God's faithfulness to Tamar. Have you ever thought, as you've read this, This amazing thought. Two sons die and two sons are born. Whoa. Where there is death, there becomes life. Where there is injustice, God provides. It's an incredible thought, isn't it? I'm sure that the narrator... Has, has identified that. That's why there's a, an insistence that we understand that two sons die and yet two sons live. There is something amazingly symmetrical about that, but there is something deeper about the very issue of how life is sustained. Life is sustained, life is given, life is provided, grace is given by God to Tamar, but it costs. She gains an inheritance way beyond her expectation. Two sons, not just as a responsibility by Onan, not just because Shalra is finally given, but by Judah. An inheritance. And yet there is another thread which is running through this. The other interesting character in this story is Perez. Why is Perez interesting? Because Perez is the great ancestor of a man named Boaz. And Boaz is the ancestor of a man called Jesse. And Jesse is the father of King David. I don't know what kind of inheritance Tamar hoped for. Within a world that looked at the future and the and the giving of future generations as an incredible gift. 
But one of the things that she never realized at that point in time, and yet we are given the privilege of seeing, is Tamar is in the golden thread of the line of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Tamar, the one who was disregarded, the one who was considered secondary, nothing. Send her to her father, let her be a widow for all of her life, and yet it is Tamar who becomes the bearer of the line of Jesus. What does that tell us? tells us right back at the very beginning of where we started is that God is gracious in the mess of this world. Isn't that great news? Tamar, we can look back and we can say, honor, glory, amazing. Tamar is one of those great, historical, beautiful characters of the ancient world because she is the bearer of Perez who becomes the one who ultimately is the great ancestor of David. Let me read you a little section from the book of Ruth. It's where Boaz uh, takes on, in a similar kind of set of circumstances, Ruth as his wife. And the elders and all the people at the gate say this, We're witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your life be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Isn't that amazing? They're singing about Tamar. They're singing about how amazing and kind and gracious and merciful that God was to Tamar who bore Perez, and they're saying, would you, Boaz, would you be blessed in the same way? Would Ruth be blessed? Yes, she will. Do you know what I think is amazing about this story? It shouts out, God cares for those who are the disbanded, those who are the disregarded, those who are the broken, those who are the ones who feel as if there is no hope in this world as though I am as good as dead. And when we look to the hope in Jesus, even though we might feel as though we are in that situation, this story tells us that the kind of God that we worship is one who is gracious and will take care of the downcast who turn to Him. Is that good news? You see, we think that God only deals in the nice comfortable contexts but he deals in the mess like this he provides an inheritance beyond Tamar's wildest expectations I guess what this probably suggests to us is that Tamar understood the promise of God which was given to Abraham which was given to Isaac which was given to her father-in-law, her father-in-law Jacob. And Joe Judah didn't understand it, I think Tamar did. She knew the inheritance, she knew the privilege, she knew the glory of what was to come. In the mess of this world, are we looking to the same gracious God? 
I guess that's the concluding point. Are we looking to the same kind of gracious God? I guess the only other thing to say is, well, what's going on in Egypt? We'll have a look next week.